Welcome to the Marshall Crew of Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Recording this, oh boy, July 27th. Why is that something worth mentioning? Well, my pal Jerry Siddiff, who puts together the questions for us. Uh, the little date stamp on the questions that we received, uh, it's from the 25th, two days ago. And with how this IndyCar season has gone, oh my goodness, two days since I got the list of questions from Jerry, and everything's basically blown up. So uh, I'll probably open here just covering a couple of the new developments since Jerry assembled everything for us. Should mention, uh, I greatly appreciate all of you. I really, really do. Uh, Y'all sent in... 4,000 words, according to Jerry, and more than 70 questions. 7-0, uh, and fully justified, because we had a crazy weekend in Iowa. We had crazy things preceding that. We've had, since then, other stuff. So, had we assembled all them tonight, I'm assuming we'd probably be near 100 questions, if not more. Let me say, on top of a, a huge thanks to all of you, very same thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, all of whom have supported our show for five or more years now. So I believe we cracked over into year six, was it, in May? Something like that. Uh, so thank you, seriously, to all them, to all of you, and I love getting together each week here. A little bit of a different week, though, as I am currently recording while sitting on the kind of sort of couch at my hotel here in Indianapolis, drove here Monday. My friend Dan Layton from Honda, kind enough to offer me the passenger seat in his HPD edition Honda Ridge line. So thanks for that, coach. Came in from Iowa, got here late afternoon Monday, and the old keyboard. Keyboard? Sure. I'm not drunk, but I feel like I should be. Uh, the old keyboard has been smoking this week with all the stuff going on. So why don't we get into that? I'm using a new kind of mobile recording solution that my friend Jack Benyon from The Race mentioned was working out well for him. So uh, we'll find out if the audio is as good as I hope it is. So let's get going with a little bit of a music bed to transition into the Q&A and a little opening of what's been going on. I don't want to just do a simple read through uh, and leave it at that. For those who have seen, today being Wednesday, myself and some other reporters happened upon the fact that on Monday, Chip Ganassi Racing filed a lawsuit against the person, Alex Pillow, and also the business that Alex has formed here. So both are the subject of a civil lawsuit. So I find time either late tonight, it's already what we're starting this at about 10.15 p.m. on a Wednesday. I'll see how much mental bandwidth I have left to start on something new. But did have a friend who is a lawyer and also an avid racing and IndyCar fan uh, take a look through what was available online and share some insights as to what they thought the Ganassi team was going after with all of it. Main thing to know... We do have sealed, sealed goodies. Uh, so this whole lawsuit and whatever it is that the Ganassi team is going after, 
young Mr. Pillow for and his business for specifically, we can deduce some of those things. But just saying in terms of, aha, there it is on the page, and this is exactly what they're aiming to do and aiming to get and aiming to reconcile. Since this has been sealed, we don't know for sure. So try and put that into a column here, uh, hopefully for Thursday, and maybe that'll provide a little bit of insight. But we do have this insane situation of a racing team with its reigning champion who has been sued in season. If that's happened before, I can't think of it. And I'm not just talking IndyCar. I'm talking any car. (laughs) I can't think of any scenario where a team has sued a driver while they were in the midst of a championship run and will find out if he's in the car on Friday, but with the belief the person who is being sued will be driving for that team. Why might he not? I don't know. I mean, there's a million reasons why he might not. The question here would be, if he does not drive, does this open up further legal problems for him in this lawsuit? Uh, It's a weird scenario where the team might have wanted to deny him access to the car when he announced that he had signed with McLaren and said he was very grumpy with the team, but he might have wanted to step out. Who knows? They might have wanted him to step out. I think strictly from a legal standpoint and trying to maintain the strength of whatever arguments they would make, I think both realize independently, uh, if I step out of the car, that's probably sending the wrong signal and could hurt me uh, if this goes to court. And same for Ganassi. Hey, if we're denying him something that we've uh, provided to him contractually before, does that expose us to something? So we've had this somewhat bizarre scenario where for a couple weeks now, not too many weeks, but uh, for a couple weeks now, we've known that there is something that is not good and not right between driver and team with no immediate answer as for how this would be reconciled. What did we learn that took place on Monday? We learned that the team said, we're not waiting till the end of the season. We're not waiting for convenient times. We want to do this now, and with some of the additional filings asking for expedited discovery, expedited hearing, the team is mashing the throttle on this. Their lawyer is truly on the rev limiter, trying to get this going as quickly as they can to get to a determination on his uh, who owns his contract as quickly as possible. So, never seen it before. I hope I never see it again. (laughs) Uh, It provides plenty of fodder to debate, plenty to write about. I will be really honest. I just like to go racing. The drama, I prefer my drama to be on track in its origination. Drivers did something. Something happened in pit lane. Someone was so quick on a pit stop that they jumped into the lead and won. Or... That's where I love my racing. The drama off track and this kind of nonsense. I don't even think this falls into silly season, right? To me, silly season stuff is who's going to drive where, who's going to sign for whom. Uh, A lot of the, the pieces moving around 
I realize that silly season is at the heart of this, but this just feels like a lot of things are broken. And so that's the part that just... The moment that this is resolved is a moment I will be happy. And the sooner that happens, the happier I will be. I might be in the minority here. Not that it matters what I think on this and who cares, but just saying, getting back to racing, that is the thing that I look forward to. And I'd rather be talking about which driver might go where based on their interests or the team's interests and not ways in which careers might be ruined, people might be embarrassed, people might lose all kinds of things. Um, that's not what I'm here for. I don't assume the majority of you are here for it. So, yeah. Um, as is normal, I've had a lot of conversations this week already. Today was jam-packed, as was yesterday with phone calls. Uh, some of them I cannot talk about at all. But I can tell you that the silly season is by no means done, independent of Alex Pillow, McLaren Racing, Aaron McLaren SP, and Chip Ganassi Racing. Another quick little thing, just uh, picking up since the questions came in, posted a story yesterday, that being Tuesday, about the Andretti Autosport team looking for potential replacements in the number 29 car. Uh... That is something that was ready to go uh, last week. Uh, had communicated with the team, had comments from them in place, and they asked, uh, and they made a request, and I was all for it and said, hey, could we wait until after Iowa? Uh, we want to let Devlin get through Iowa, not have any distractions, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know what? Uh, I love that. Great idea. Let's just sit on it. And we did. Uh, and just didn't happen to reconnect properly until Tuesday. So that came out and spoke with Devlin beforehand. Uh, you always try and let somebody that you know, uh, hey, story's coming out, probably not going to like it. Here's the general premise of it, but just so you're not surprised. Uh, again, communicated with the team on Monday, on Tuesday. They're fully aware of everything. Spoke with his dad. We'll see what happens there. Had a call from a team owner today. I won't mention who, but got a call from a team owner today who wanted to know a little bit more, if there was more to share that wasn't in the story. Was able to share some of that with that team owner. Can't say if or what will or will not happen with Devlin staying at Andretti Autosport next year and beyond. Uh but I can say that it was really cool to get a call from a team owner who was highly motivated in trying to be a solution uh, for Devlin and to keep his IndyCar career going if there were to be any change in that number 29 Andretti Honda. So a little bit of housekeeping there. Now, why don't we, once again, courtesy of our pal Jerry Suddeth Jive, not editing it. I haven't used this phrase in a while, but I do uh, refer to this loving, lovingly show as my unpolished turd. I leave in the mistakes because I am just a mistake-riddled human being. So why not give you an accurate podcast every week that reflects all of those flaws? Lance Snyder, a man who years ago I dubbed the Minister of Mirth on my podcast. He opens us up 
with should Ferrucci, that being Santino Ferrucci, he was on standby to drive for Joseph Newgarden if necessary on Thursday. Uh, should he get the nod because Joseph cannot race? Uh, and, you know, they have apparently retained the services of Brutus the Barber Beefcake. So we have an old school WWF wrestling reference to kick off the show. Uh, Mott Boosh. I don't know exactly the source of your screen name there, but uh, Lord love you, Mott Boosh. Marshall, when it was stated by Team Penske, uh, what the specific failure was. What was that on the car? What was the failure? Uh, I didn't get the exact part within the right rear damper, meaning bottom of the shock, top of the shock, uh, the shaft, the body, uh, what broke. I didn't get that uh, when I spoke to team president Tim Sindrick, but he was kind enough to say that, yes, indeed, there was no question as to what broke on Joseph's car. That was the right rear shock, a.k.a. the right rear damper broke that caused the right rear corner of the car to squat down in an instant that aligns perfectly with what we saw of that puff of smoke it wasn't smoke that would have been uh, the car dragging on the ground Uh, so grinding is what caused that smoke to come up uh, and the left front tire to come off the ground so uh, the diagonal is what pointed to the right rear as we saw that left front tire and wheel assembly go up in the air, again, you're always looking diagonally for the cause. So we knew it was at the right rear. That wasn't the question. Just wasn't sure if it was a right rear push rod. Was it the rocker arm that connects to the damper? Was it something else suspension-based? Who knows? But yeah, straightforward from Tim. Appreciated that. I really didn't even have to ask. Uh, That's what he opened up speaking uh, about when I connected with him uh, yesterday afternoon. So appreciate their transparency there. Uh, Michael Steenblick, how are you, brother? Been a little while. Says two questions, MP. But first, I hope all's going well with Mrs. Pruitt. Uh, Yeah, a little quick update there. Uh, And nothing to be worried about. Please, as I often request, keep this among us. This isn't meant for social media discussion, but... Uh, I refer to y'all as family because that's how we all tend to uh, treat one another. Um, wasn't able to go to Toronto. I'd mentioned passport that was expired. That is true. There were other ways for me to get to Toronto um, if I was able. Um, reason I wasn't able to go, and I've shared this with a couple of you privately, uh, and I think some of you at the uh, little Prude meetup we did at Iowa, but been having some problems, some side effects uh, with chemo uh, that my wife's been going through. And so uh, that has needed some attention. Um, Got a little email notice halfway through the first race in Iowa. Uh, Saw this pop up that said, congratulations, you're going to Southern California. And I'm like, am I? Okay. And uh, my wife had found a specialist uh, to help us go and get further, hopefully, knowledge and solutions for the uh, particular side effect issue that we're having. Uh, we were unable to find anything in the Bay Area uh, before the middle of October. So she was able to find a, I don't know if it's an independent specialist, but someone super highly rated just happens to be in Southern California. 
And so the little email popped up and it has a departure Friday morning, August 5th, and a return later in the day, August 5th. August 5th, of course, being Friday, opening day of practice at Nashville. So long story short, I found out halfway through race one at Iowa that I wasn't going to be going to Nashville and I should cancel all that travel because we have something more important to do. And thankfully, she was able to find someone who could see us now instead of months from now. So a little quick update there to open uh, with your question here, Michael. You say if Joseph Newgarden is a scratch for the weekend, would you say his championship bid is over? You say he has the most wins, but also has an average finish of ninth. Um, Let's start there. Not if Marcus Erickson and Will Power and Pato and Dixie, not if those who are closest to Joseph fighting uh, for the championship, either a little bit ahead or just right behind. Not if those folks uh, fail to have great weekends. If Marcus finishes sixth or fifth or whatever, or Pato is somewhere around there, power you know, isn't his dynamic self, that's where Joseph's season is saved from a championship standpoint. So if I am a Joseph and I am having to miss this weekend. Without a doubt, I am becoming <laughs> the biggest cheerleader in the history of Earth. Uh, hey, uh, Colton Herta, go in the race. Uh, Felix Rosenquist, uh, go get it. Graham Rahal, well, that'd be wonderful. Groshaw, you were really quick here as a rookie. Romar, go get a win, buddy. Do it. Connor, do it. Christian Lungard, a, a fantastic uh, flag-to-flag victory. Those are the kinds of things that Joseph would be uh, best served by. Uh, but yeah, if this is a case where Marcus happens to win, takes home 51 points, power, similar, it doesn't become impossible, but it does become darn hard with only four races to go to uh, get all of that back. So if he can't do it, we are just doing championship watch for Joseph and how his closest contenders for his sake, if you're rooting for Joseph, they'll have very average days. And if you are not a Joseph fan, then you are rooting for uh, the others to do well. But for a guy who just got hurt and might be uh, not in the car, I hope you wouldn't be rooting against him. That would I, I wouldn't say you're doing excellent on the human being part. Uh, your final question here, Michael, is do you think it would benefit Herta if he got away from Andretti uh, and his dad and signed with the Penske Organassi? I don't think getting away from his dad would do anything uh, positive. Uh, I don't think it'd be a great negative, like all of a sudden, you know, being away from his dad would tank his chances. I don't think it would increase his chances. But yes, <laughs> if he could slide over to that 10 car, if he slid into Will Power's 12 car in a year or two or whenever Will retires, just based on current form and recent form, it's been a while since the Andretti team, from a championship standpoint, strictly a championship standpoint, was a real concern, Michael. Uh, I know we've had some seconds and thirds and thirds and fourths and whatever between Rossi and 
and uh, Colton here over the last three, four, however many years, but real watch out. This person is on a title march and, oh, just lost it at the last moment. That hasn't been the case. If either of the teams you mentioned were able to get a hold of Colton, I mean, that would almost be unfair considering how stacked they are with talent as it is. Uh, Ed Joris, you raise a question here that I am actively pursuing from a story standpoint, have been doing that for most of the week. Uh, So let me get into some of what you are cracking open. You say, has IndyCar ever published a concussion protocol? Uh, IndyCar helmets have accelerometers. Uh, For the first part, I would have to assume internally they have a concussion protocol. Have they ever published it for the world to see? I can't imagine so. If they have, it'd be a surprise to me. Do IndyCar helmets have accelerometers? No, they do not. Uh, Within the earbuds that drivers use, there are accelerometers placed in those. You say having suffered your fair share of concussions and worked on standard setting groups, letting someone drive a race car five days after losing consciousness seems a bit, all right, let me tone this down, aggressive. I don't understand why the powers that be don't show some compassion and let him heal for a week. There's almost no risk of being overcautious. You say the risks of not being cautious enough are staggering. Say, I realize he's going to want to race. He's going to insist that he's all right, but missing a week won't kill him. All right, that's interesting phrasing to close uh, that submission there, Ed. I don't disagree with anything you have said. The being overly protective... uh, I don't want to go too far into this because we could spend a really long time and I I truly don't have a crazy amount of time tonight. A couple of questions that I've raised, I hope to be able to ask them directly to uh, Dr. Billows. Uh, The questions that I've raised have been to the series, uh, not necessarily to the medical team directly coming out of Iowa, but I do, I'm hoping to be able to sit down with Dr. Billows tomorrow. Joseph has a very hard hit. We know this because of the severity, the the sound of the crash uh, told us that there was something big that happened. Um, He gets out of the car, goes to the infield care center, is checked physically, and I would assume, and again, I'll confirm exactly what they look at, if he'll tell me, with Dr. Billows, uh, IndyCar's medical director. Um, He's not bleeding. There are no broken bones. Um... He can walk, he can talk, got it, but that crash was pretty darn big. Um, It might not have looked massive on television, but we heard it inside the, sitting in the media center, inside the kind of turn four to the start finish area on the inside of the track. Um, We heard this kaboom. And this is with the full race in action. The sound of 25, 26 cars, engines revving, all the noise from the whole field, and it stood out way above that. Kabam! And it had a lot of kind of bass and thud to it. And so that was the scary part. A second or two later, whatever it was, the TV cameras cut to it and showed it. But in that just little brief second or two before whatever it was, the cameras caught it, uh, it was clear that someone just hit the wall a ton. And so car comes to a rest. 
He gets out, goes through all that, goes to the medical centers I mentioned. Um, there's no specific time that it takes to get the accelerometer information out of the earbuds uh, or just yeah, uh, from their earpieces. And I'm going to try and get a little deeper insight into that as well. As I understand it, it is a download process from the vehicle. Downloading from the accelerator, accelerators, accelerometers that IndyCar has within uh, within the, all the cars. Um, told it can take roughly a half an hour to get that uh, information and the data saying how much the drivers had uh, experienced in terms of uh, g-forces in the crash and so those accelerometers go very 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 high the threshold as i wrote about some of you may know about is 80 g's if you hit 80 or exceed 80 you will be coming back for a concussion test here's the part ed where i'm just needing to dig in a little bit more with the series they have the ability to do the impact concussion test, I'm told. It's basically just a software program. Could be on anyone's laptop. This is not a big high-tech piece of uh, medical equipment. It's truly a test where they'll throw whatever it is, X amount of words at you. It's effectively a memory game. <coughs> Lampshade, elephant grass, taco, pickup truck, and they'll go to something else. Then they'll ask you to repeat what it was, lampshade, taco, zebra, whatever, and start to see your cognitive capabilities. Are you able to remember things? Are you not? Um, this is not, to my knowledge, and again, I'm not aware that this is what they do, but if I've missed something and they do it, then again, uh, my bad, but I'm not aware of any actual optometric devices that would be used to look into the driver's eyes and see into the back of their brain and be able to detect a concussion or other things at the track with the traveling medical equipment that they have. Is that something that needs to be improved? Is that something that needs attention? I'll wait to draw final conclusions until I can ask all the questions. Uh, but this is just one area that stood out as a little bit not great. And so I'll just close with this, Ed. Procedurally, as I was told by the series, for how things happened on Sunday with Joseph, crash, medical center, evaluation, release. Not cleared to drive, but released. Following that, information coming in, downloaded, however exactly, again, it's another thing I need to clarify, exactly how long in the method uh, of the doctors receiving the data. Uh, found that he had indeed exceeded 80 Gs, and someone from the medical staff went and found him and scheduled a return to IndyCar Medical this Thursday where he will take an impact test. They will then compare that to the baseline impact test he either did before this season or within the last two seasons, right? That's their policy. And based on how he performs in this test, 
how that compares to his baseline. A straightforward decision will be made as to whether he is given the all clear to drive. Of the holes that I'm in knowledge and maybe procedure, I don't know, Ed, that I'm hoping to figure out and write about. A lot of folks said that when Joseph came out of the medical center and spoke to NBC, he looked a little off, a little woozy. Assuming that there was not a large amount of time from when he stepped out to when he was interviewed, you would say, is this something that might have been picked up inside? Because none of us are doctors, and he looked a little off. Um, is that something that could have or should have been detected while he was in their care the first time? Or did that manifest in the minute or two or whatever from leaving to being on camera? As drivers sometimes do in front of doctors, they do their best to put on brave faces and act as normal as possible when they're feeling a little bit off. And these are all possibilities. No answer as to what is or is not correct. The one thing I, I think I've deduced and figured out to be true as a possible procedural whole is this happened on a Sunday there's no racing the next day. It's not like, again, he crashed on Saturday, and they're wanting to run him through the tests and see if he would be cleared to go on Sunday. So instead, a follow-up visit for Thursday is what was scheduled. Job done at the track. My mind goes towards, if you have hard data that anyone has suffered an ATG or more impact and their brain has accelerated at a rate of 80 Gs or more and slammed into their inside of their skull. That to me stops being about racing. When a person might drive next and if and how they might be cleared, my mind goes towards you have the very real likelihood of a seriously injured person in the paddock forget the scheduling the future and whatever there's whatever whatever look at this think of this like a broken bone a huge laceration uh, something where you go this person's highly injured go get them we just got the information that they exceeded this somewhat large threshold right 80 g's it's not 20 g's this is a right if you exceeded that we know you had a big hit and you got your bell rung, you might not be demonstrating big, big characteristics of, you know, eyes rolling the back of your head and vomiting and loss of balance and any of the other things. Maybe these are really tiny, barely perceptible conditions. Maybe, who knows, maybe there's no problems with you at all. But let's treat this like something very serious just happened. Go find this person this has nothing to do with racing. Take their rental car keys away or whatever it is. Have them sit down and we are going to have someone either from the series or your team chaperone you uh, until we get you back to wherever you need to go. But we absolutely need to treat you like a wounded person, uh, but with someone who has the potential of a very serious injury that we cannot exactly see with our naked eyes. So 
that's the part, Ed, where I think there needs might need to be a little bit of a, a different approach. Forget the racing. The minute that alarm goes off about exceeding hitting or exceeding 80, I just I gotta believe that there needs to be an instant response. Get that person back to medical. Forget just scheduling a test. Get them back to medical. Put them on a golf cart. Sit them down. Uh, no, you're not driving. No, you're not walking. Uh, no, you're not like pay. We need to escalate this uh, to a, a level that is very serious. And I'm not saying they don't take it serious. I'm just saying I, I wonder if the view of cleared to drive in the future and thinking about this from a ability to perform their job. Just wondering if that might be receiving a little bit too much of an emphasis um, over just looking at this person might either be in a state of trauma right now, or it might be a half hour or an hour. We don't know, but we know that this is a possibility. Let's react that way. So I'm going to try and ask all these things that find out they may, who know, well, granted, I asked and was told that that isn't exactly what happened, but I'm hoping to learn a lot that I don't know, fill in voids, and come out of this with some form of article or answer where, at least for the thing, my ignorances, hopefully I can solve as many of those as possible and find out more here. Because, yeah, this is not uh, this is not something simple uh, or we just kind of sweep this under the proverbial rug. So I've been trying to uh, get smarter on this all week and hope to finally see the doc uh, tomorrow Thursday or today Thursday, depending on when you're listening to this or maybe Friday. Uh, Jeff Greendike, you say thoughts on Santino possibly driving this weekend for the captain. With the same preface of I don't want it to happen because I want Joseph to be okay, truly okay, not pushing himself to get back, no one else, but like, hey, I feel 100% fine. Uh, every medical screening and every everything says I'm fine. Like, I just would love for him to be back and 100% in the car. If he's not... I think this is the greatest potential opportunity Santino has ever had in his career because being co-signed by Roger Penske is something that every driver dreams of. The fact that they would look at him and say, you're our guy is amazing. Uh, any of the baggage that he has, either self-initiated or outrage-era, social justice warrior-era uh, allegations are the same as a guilty verdict approach that's been taken with the kid. Um, there, whatever percentage of folks, Jeff, who believe that this kid is the worst human being in the world and should have everything taken away and never have an opportunity. Uh, do I agree with Santino's views on life and other things, not particularly. But I don't cover the societal beliefs, uh, religious beliefs, uh, political leanings of drivers or team owners. Uh, I look at the competitive athletic side. And so for those who dislike him, hate him, believe he is Satan in a five foot four curly haired body or whatever height he is, um, that's your thing. Um, I look at the kid and say he will never have a better opportunity to show the world that he is a special talent 
than by jumping into what has been the best IndyCar this year in terms of reaching victory lane. Four wins on the way to five in that number two Chevy. If he climbs into that car and does well, I don't know if I would expect him to outrun his teammates who know the general Penske approach to setup, have been at the Indy Road Course in their cars with those setups already once a year, once this year. I don't know if I would expect Santino to outrun Will Power. Uh, I don't know if I'd expect him to outrun Scotty McLaughlin. But I think if he, on a moment's notice, uh, can jump in and be close, and if he's top 10, top 12 in the uh, first practice session, I think that should be received as a holy cow. Why isn't this kid uh, being signed by somebody full-time right now? And if he can improve that in qualifying, if he can just improve that in the race, if he can be kind of a top eight, top seven guy, I think folks will absolutely give him a standing ovation. I don't think they'll do it physically, but maybe mentally at least within the paddock because you know how good the car is. Wherever Will Power happens to be, since he's the fastest pole-winning guy uh, in the series, we're just looking to see, Jeff, where Santino is in comparison to Will, and I don't think he would be super, super far away. He gets a bit of a bad rap uh, uh, for his road and street course performances. I don't understand why. I think it's so skewed on the ovals. He's so good on the ovals that there's a belief that, well, he's exceptional there, but that's really the one place. It's not It's not the case. He, If you take a deeper dive, his road and street course performances, they are very, very noteworthy, driving for teams that very few would say, oh, that's a front runner. Um, he's done some pretty impressive stuff. So if he can uh, get into the car, he's never going to have a better opportunity to show folks that they need to hire him. And so best case scenario, if he's in that car and he does well, I think when I spoke to him a week and a half ago or whatever it was when I was doing the latest silly season piece and finding out what he had going on or didn't, um, I think he goes from having not a lot for next year other than, again, maybe just doing the Indy 500 again. Uh, I think I think folks say, you know what, we can't overlook this kid anymore. Uh, Tim Falkowitz, you say, man, Joseph Newgarden was so dominant this weekend. What makes him so good at that track? Has he found the magic setup, or does he just know how to drive it? Now, I do love the fact that he was good there with Ed Carpenter. He's good there with his previous race engineers. Uh, he's got a brand new race engineer this year. He's very good with him as well. Tells you that, A, he's very good at working with race engineers, but also, uh, he, (laughs) he's the common denominator. Uh, obvious statement alert there, Tim. There is a patience and aggression thing going on at Iowa, and it's pretty phenomenal to watch. Joseph. There are a couple other drivers who are really good there as well, but he in particular, obviously, is just a standout. And it's the guy's ability to deal with a car that might be bouncing around more than he likes, but this is someone who is less affected by that than some. And also, uh, he does not make his lap time at Iowa, in a general sense, by having to punish the car. 
which in turn punishes the tires and then in turn makes them last way less uh, than they want to per stint. So it's kind of like Scott Dixon at Mid-Ohio. You go, all right, that guy's won there 400 times. Why? Rhythmic alignment. There is a a rhythmic alignment between Scott Dixon and Mid-Ohio. The flow, the ebbs of speeds and up and down and left and right, they all just make sense to him. He can get into an amazing rhythm there and just outrun everybody, fewer mistakes every lap, just the consistent rhythm. That's what Joseph is able to do at Iowa and has been able to for many years now. It's really impressive when you see a driver that is so in sync with the unique challenges of a track like that. There's one other thing to mention. This isn't something to take away any of Joseph's amazing capabilities, Tim, but if you watched the Penske cars at Iowa in the corners where they were the biggest bumps, uh, they rode over them like Cadillacs just smooth and barely undulating and barely affected by them. Cars still moved around, right? There are some moments, all three of them had moments, you know, some sort of oversteer moment or whatever, but they were the class of the field from a handling standpoint in the bumps that were just causing other drivers so many problems because their their damping package, mechanical package was nowhere close to Team Penske's. They suffered, hated life, could not wait for the weekend to be over. Joseph, Will, and Scotty, yeah, they are very thankful to have phenomenal folks who came up with great stuff from a damping standpoint at the track to where their cars were just far less disturbed. And among the three, Will was excellent, right? But uh, Joseph was excellent-er. So, yeah. Uh, just a rhythmic thing, man. He he gets that place uh, seemingly like nobody else. Uh, Brian Cohn, great question here. And I'm just taking a look at the little kind of sort of clock on my recording device, which says we're at 42 minutes, I believe. All right, we'll keep going for a little while longer. Uh, let me scroll back up here. I apologize, Brian. I said, Marshall, can you explain why street core shocks don't work at Iowa, and what changes are made to make them work. Uh, also said, good to see you back at the track. Uh, David Malukas was gold during your video. Uh, more of him, please. And also, you kindly say best to my wife, Shabrell, those pesky cats, and your dark beer drinking self. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I think I'm going to have Malukas on more often, by the way. Um, yeah, that kid. <laughs> Love that kid. Um Let's just go with the overarching thing here of why would, say, an Andretti Autosport that is often magic on street courses, uh, why would their damping not be magic at, say, Iowa? Um, I don't know if I should even single out an Andretti Autosport, but uh, the difference between the two is velocity, and it's just crazy high frequency almost all the time. The straight between turns two and three at Iowa, not really a big, bumpy, oscillating thing, so not so much there. Uh, The front straight between turn four and turn one, you know, a little bit there, but just think of the fact that at Long Beach, uh, for example, 
we have blasting down a straight, a braking event, and then a turning event, and then getting back on power. These things at most of the corners on a street track. Uh, Long Beach, Detroit, wherever. Not all of them, but just saying most. They are indeed kind of separate things, separate events that are happening. It's not a explosion through a turn at Toronto at just ungodly speed with crazy bumps as well. And all four corners just bouncing up and down um, at a million miles per hour. That's not what we tend to see. So while there can be big spikes in damper forces, uh, right, boom, hit a curb and a huge spike, huge pressure, huge energy that's uh, being asked to deal with. The, the damper velocity, the frequency of the undulations, how often and how consistent, how long of a duration, those tend not to be long. You go to a place like Iowa, and more or less the minute you're turning into turn one through the time you're coming out of turn two, which is not long, uh, your dampers are just being pummeled like Mike Tyson at the heavy bag, just but at a crazy higher rate of speed. And so you have dampers that are being, we just think about compressing and rebounding. That thing is happening so hard, so fast, so frequently uh, that you have a totally different dynamic uh, in ways where if you're going around the, the water fountain at Long Beach, for example, yes, shocks are compressing. There's all kinds of things going on. It's not at a crazy high rate of speed. Uh, it's not at this pummeling, pummeling, punching bag type pace. That's what Iowa is, 17-second laps, 18-second laps. Uh, it's having to tune and adjust for that, which is radically different, where instead of Iowa being punching the, uh, the speed bag and it going a million miles an hour, Long Beach, it's more like punching the heavy bag. Punch, kind of stand back and reset, punch again. It's happening, much slower rate of speed, much slower frequencies. Therefore, you can't carry one over to the other. Um, Eric Franklin, thank you for this. Uh, you just wanted to say Hy-Vee deserves a huge pat on the back for everything they did. Uh, absolutely. Um, you say, my question is related to the wave around under yellow. You say, I'm not a fan. Eh, but it is a rule, so fine. Why, though, does race control continue to hold hold the yellow to make sure everyone gets their stop in? You say the Kirkwood crash, especially. The track looked ready to go. Uh, but the one-lap-down crews were just starting their services. Uh, did they go green based on track availability or forming the field up? I uh, would say 100% forming the field up. If this is what we might call a quick yellow, hey, uh, something fell off one of the cars. It's really close to one of the AMR safety trucks. Uh, we're going to go yellow. They're going to run over and grab it. And then that truck's going right back into its slot. And, you know, really, it's 30 seconds to one minute total time to rectify the problem. I cannot see IndyCar, you know, opening the pits after it being closed and going through that whole process. I would think they would go right back. 
something like the Kirkwood crash, not a huge crash, but a crash nonetheless. Um, opportunity to uh, run through normal pit procedures, pitting procedures, uh, and let that happen. So could be wrong, but uh, they always seem to place number one emphasis on getting the field uh, lined up properly, getting everything done. And if it looks like it's going to be just a little bit because you have a car into a wall, you need to get the uh, tow truck out there, maybe clean up a little bit of things. Like that's just a, we know we're going to be down for a few minutes at least. Not a hard thing on a very short lap, uh, even under caution at Iowa to let everyone cycle through, do their thing. And uh, for those who want to stay out a lap, get a lap back and then pit uh, after that. Uh, Brian Smith, so everyone seemed to be really high on the promotional job that High V did, uh, and everybody wants to see something similar for other races on the schedule. But isn't that going to be dependent upon presenting sponsors willing to put the same level of investment in? Is there a reason to believe this could be duplicated at Texas or another oval? Uh, or a road course, Brian? Uh, I believe there is a reason to believe it could be duplicated. The conversation I had with, I don't remember whom, somebody in the IndyCar paddock on Sunday, I think maybe, um, it just basically went along the lines of, this is amazing. One of Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan's sponsors, based in Iowa, knowing that the uh, the last I Iowa was not on the calendar last year, hey, they've got some ideas on how they might uh, really do something big here. Let's get it back. Let's do entertainment. They've got big ideas in their home state, and this makes a lot of sense. IndyCar really needed and wanted to get back to Iowa. Here we go. Um, this conversation that I had, I'm sure others have had as well, Brian, and it went along the lines of who within Penske Entertainment, who within the Penske organization in general, is looking around the state of Texas or Portland, right? Last year, Portland, even the year before, a little bit soft on attendance, without a doubt. Like, it was noticeable. Everybody noticed, like, oh, okay, numbers are down. Uh, my home track, Laguna Seca, sadly, has been abysmal for attendance. Who at Penske Entertainment, uh, who within the greater Penske Empire, is saying, okay, Let's get a master list of all the corporate sponsors and partners that we have, not just with the Team Penske IndyCar program, but uh, NASCAR, any and everywhere else. All the companies, major companies that do business with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that Roger owns and the series. Uh, any friends that you might have that own major companies or run major companies. Geographically, where are they? And are there any in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area? Um, or if it's a statewide uh, business that has a big impact there in Texas and maybe other bordering states, who can we talk to? Who can we say hi? Uh, you know, person who owns business that does whatever you do. How could you be our version of High V at Texas Motor Speedway, at Portland, at Laguna Seca? Uh, right. Silicon Valley is one hour-ish, hour and a half north of Laguna Seca. There are a lot of businesses there that I have to imagine. Uh, if 
IndyCar is really and truly motivated. And teams within the series who have sponsors that might be from Silicon Valley, San Jose, San Francisco, wherever. Hi, <laughs> uh, let's party together down at Laguna Seca and let's do some pretty amazing stuff. Like the Pope once visited there. I think it was like 1988. The Pope, no joke, visited Laguna Seca. Uh, the Grateful Dead played at Laguna Seca. Like non-racing things, big things happen there. How do we do this? How do we sell a bunch of tickets, put on concerts, make Laguna Seca look big and important and proud uh, to come out and show out for IndyCar? I got to believe, Brian, that within the greater Penske empire, they have seen that there should be a motivation to build that master list of all the companies, all the people they know, where their corporate headquarters are, where their whatever might be, start asking themselves, how do we turn Texas into the whatever company um, IndyCar Weekend? And same with any of the other events that are a little bit soft on attendance. How do we fix that? Uh, Iowa just set that blueprint. So I got to believe they see, yes, we need to do our homework and see who's where and how we might bring them in. Uh, Steve Bonek, thank you for sending this back in, by the way. Uh, you say resubmitting this question that didn't make it. Uh, when doing our debrief on the race with my youngest on the drive back from mid-Ohio. We discussed sticker tires versus scuffed tires. She asked, why is that a thing? I said, good question for MP. Uh, cheers, MP. Hope to see you in Nashville. Yeah, I, I wish I could see you there as well, brother. But yeah, uh, we're going to have to uh, go do the more important thing, which is uh, make sure that Mrs. Pruitt uh, is getting everything she needs. Um, we have this beautiful concept of heat treatment uh sticker tires right um there's nothing wrong with brand new tires that have not turned a lap and still have the stickers on them from firestone or cooper tires if we're talking road to indy or whatever series uh, there's nothing wrong with those tires at all they're fantastic they will make great grip right away and last however long the driver and the setup allows we're talking a race where you know that uh, you might run longer stints. And you're knowing going into a race weekend, into a race where you might ask those tires to perform a little bit longer than they normally do. And this is not limited to IndyCar, but I know we're talking about Mid-Ohio at IndyCar. Uh, scuffing them. Uh, that is the art of putting a very gentle heat cycle into that tire. Going out, it might be one lap, it might be two laps, it's rarely more than that. But this is asking a driver to go out and effectively cure the tires so that they have been put through an optimal, very low-ish temperature, not aggressive lap or two to effectively cure them and get longer life out of them. Cure the, the chemicals within the, the carcass. With what I, I wish you could look at the tread and go, there's the compound. But uh, this is just a way uh, 
uh, for drivers and teams to get the optimal life out of their tires. They're giving themselves the best chance because just going out on sticker tires and going like heck, again, they work wonderfully, but there is something that has been learned and demonstrated to be of value uh, in terms of consistent speed and hopefully a little bit longer duration with those tires by going out and putting in a gentle heat cycle through them, letting them warm up to temperature, but not big, um, flying, doing lap record type speeds and putting that kind of heat and energy in. It's just kind of a uh, putting your, turning the oven on low. That's what this is. Not putting it on 475, but just setting the oven on low and just letting them cure gingerly for a lap, maybe two, depending on where we're at, and coming in and stopping and having those tires come off and sitting and waiting to be used again. Uh, Andy Sterling, MP, can you explain the mechanics of how drivers get a lap back on yellows? Uh, absolutely. So why don't we just use, really, this is an oval thing, um, especially a shorter oval thing. Uh, big ovals, it doesn't necessarily always work out, uh, again, depending on the timing of when you're going back to green and whatnot. But uh, in a very basic way, if we think about Iowa last week, and let's say you are one lap down, and uh, this is something that happens during cautions, not during green flag running, but you're out there running, you are a lap down, there's caution for whatever reason, pits open, lead cars go in. You'll tend to see a train of cars stay out. And who knows, I think what, in race one was it? Or race two? Uh, I forget, I apologize. But it was like um, everybody from 16th place and back um, were the, the real benefic beneficiaries here. But what you end up getting is caution comes out, pits open, and essentially all the cars on the lead lap, the ones who are in the most competitive state, all pit. Uh, you'll see all the ones who are lapped down or more stay out and basically move straight up behind the uh, pace car and circulate behind the pace car. Uh, what we end up having then is those cars going around and passing the, uh, the cars that were pitting ahead of them one lap up. And by passing them, by staying on track while those cars are stationary and in, in the pits receiving their service... They have unlapped themselves. And so what you then have is uh, those cars will cycle around and pit and get their service done. And with the pit stop and time exchange, uh, that is how they get things back. So yeah, it's effectively just staying out for an extra lap. It's pretty much always works. I'm trying to think of times when it wouldn't, um, again, unless it's some sort of crazy short caution. Uh, but that is the process. You stay out, you unlap yourself, um, and then you go in and do your service, keeping in mind that uh, when you come back out, uh, you would be falling behind all the cars that were on the lead lap uh, that had come out, but you're no longer one lap down because you did get ahead of them and were on the lead lap. Uh, they came back out, and you all decided to pit, 
and got your service done and everything uh, kind of comes back together for those who are just one lap down of now being on the lead lap. What you'll get for those who are two or three or four is they're just doing that at every caution. And if you have enough cautions, you can get all of your laps back, but uh, it's not always the case. So yeah, pretty straightforward. Just next oval in particular, uh, when we get to gateway here in not too long, uh, this usually isn't something we're on the first yellow. If it's, you know, 10 laps in, uh, you're not going to really have hopefully anybody that's been lapped by then. But you start to get, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the race in and more. That's where the opportunities to unlap yourself. Uh, cars that have been lapped tend to start going for that maneuver. Uh, where are we at here? I don't know if I'm going to get to all your questions this episode. Uh, friends, we are just a little bit past an hour. Um, Vincent, thanks for sending in your questions. Those are a little bit evergreen, so I'll sit on those for right now. Uh, Jeremiah Morell, my dear pal, you sent in a question here. I'm going to be on your podcast tomorrow night, driving about an hour uh, out to be there. So why don't you throw that to me then? Um Let's see. Uh, Mitsuki Matsura, how funny. Uh, Marshall-san, how much water and other fluids like Pepsi did you drink throughout the race weekend in Iowa? Uh, the amount of it could be more than that of an IndyCar uses in the fuel uh, tank, maybe? I hope you stayed hydrated and had a good time there. I sure did, uh, Matsura-san. Stop drinking Pepsi and sodas and all that kind of stuff and, frankly, eating sweets and desserts and all that. Gave that stuff up a couple years ago? Um so that's been one of the reasons why I've been gradually losing weight. Uh, so none of that. I brought from home a one-gallon uh, jug, like you might, would buy and bring to a gym or, or whatever else. So brought that with me, filled that up every day. I think Saturday, I, well, Friday, I drank a gallon at the track uh, of water cut with about I don't know, um, half a pint of Gatorade Zero. Uh, so I think I drank about a gallon and a quarter of basically flavored water on Friday. On Saturday, I drank a gallon by like three o'clock and I think had more or less another half gallon. So one and a half gallons of water. Gosh, what is that? Ten and a half pounds of water on Saturday and Sunday was a lot friendlier. So Actually, I think it was only like half a gallon, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that, three quarters of a gallon. So yeah, a lot of fluid, uh, but that was all intentional. And I definitely drank a lot on Wednesday and Thursday to kind of top myself up, pal. Um, Eric O'Brien, you're asking about how much downforce is being added or subtracted per half turn, as you saw during Iowa. My brain is really, truly forgetting that. I will have to ask, uh, re-ask uh, a friend this weekend. Hopefully I remember. Um, yeah, sorry, brother. My brain's farting here. It's 11.21 p.m. So uh, I've been up writing uh, since about 7.30, 7.15. Not meant to be an excuse, just an explanation why my brain's maybe not sharp as it might be. Uh, Zach Dean. Say, man, the Andretti Autosport struggles had me wondering if they would consider running fewer cars in the future. 
said, hate to lose cars on the grid, but four cars seems like way too many for Andretti Autosport. However, one car seems way too few for Hunko's Hollinger. Um, by the time you're listening to this, you might uh, know there's some news coming out of Hunko's Hollinger Racing on Thursday, 2 p.m. Press release uh, about future stuff. Um, and I've been sitting on that for a little while, and they've been kind enough to uh, give us a bit of a what, I think 15-minute advance to uh, put the story out. So all positive. Um, yeah, Sure worked for Team Penske, hasn't it? Uh, Roger does not want to go back to four because having... They didn't suck, but they just weren't as effective as they were at four. Uh, that was a decision. Let's go down to three. And wow, this year, that has been one of the biggest stories of the year. That operational decision has been one of the key reasons Team Penske is as strong as it is. They have downsized. They have focused. Fewer distractions, fewer dissimilarities between either drivers or just the effectiveness of the four-car operation. Uh, for what I wrote about regarding the 29 car, they are looking to just put race-winning championship caliber type driver in there to raise their overall competitiveness. <sighs> Depending on who they get, I would be all for that move because if we're talking a veteran type driver, knowing that they have their one and only true veteran in Alexander Rossi going out, uh, Zach, uh, I'd love to hear about front-running veteran who can be a leader in uh, among the drivers, be a leader in the engineering meetings, be a policy setter or a culture setter within the team. Um, this team is rarely one we talk about that's lacking in talent. Uh, chemistry, though. Chemistry is not just drivers and engineers. That's the most important chemistry. How each driver and their engineer works and understands each other and is on the, the same wavelength to get the most out of themselves consistently. That's the, that's the relationship that matters most, but it's not the only thing. And culturally, one of the things that has made Chip Ganassi Racing very good for many years now is the culture they have fostered as drivers have come and gone, engineers have come and gone, mechanics, like there's just a general, hey, this is who we are and this is how we do it. Welcome new person. We want to add in the things that make you unique and add and improve us. But at the same time, we're not letting you just go free, radical, be whomever you are and we'll adjust to you. Uh, we need you to adjust to us. Team Penske, same exact way. Always consistently good. One of the things that has been new-ish to Air McLaren SP, uh, and give a lot of credit, I mean truly an amazing amount of credit, to team president Taylor Kyle. That's a glue guy. That's a culture and chemistry guy. Billy Vincent is that person. And we can run down a lot of other folks, down to newish mechanics who've been there uh, one year, two years, maybe, um, could be a young woman who's new to the team and she's awesome and brings all kinds of amazing things 
to the program, uh, but also just culturally and, and energy-wise and, and glue-wise is phenomenal. Or this veteran who is that way. Like, there's been a lot of th- great components within the team that haven't always necessarily gelled. There have been new folks added in. Um, what they have right now in this greater Indianapolis area operation is wonderful. Um, that's a reason to prize that. Just sharing some of these other examples that, funnily enough, are all attached to teams that are kicking ass and taking names. Penske, Ganassi, Air McLaren SP. Is there a lack of talent on the engineering side at Andretti? Oh my goodness, no. (laughs) Any team, every team would poach all their engineers right now if they could. Driver-wise, Devlin obviously is a rookie, so we don't really place any expectations on him. But hey, Air McLaren SP just went and got Alexander Rossi. So clearly, right, they value him. Colton Herta, every team in the paddock would have that guy tomorrow. Romain, I don't know. Right, It's been a little bit of a, a different year than he anticipated, and I think everybody anticipated. But if he can find some sort of groove, uh, I think he as well is someone that a lot of folks would have an interest in. But culturally, this is a team that I hate to say it, almost every year we look at and go, oh boy, what was missing there? What were you off on? And it can't always be the mechanical side. It can't always be car-related. <sighs> Culturally, chemistry-wise, glue-wise, one team, one dream, Zach. Um, that's the big area left for Andretti Autosport to find and fix so they can become consistently good, not just with one car, but with multiple cars every year. Air McLaren SP, Pato's the clear leader between the two, but look, they're both running strong this year. Of the three veterans at Ganassi, all three of them are going like bears and are in the title hunt. All three at Penske have been bears winning races this year. Two of the three are really in the title hunt. Scotty McLaughlin's a little bit farther back, but just uh, the stuff isn't a mystery. Uh, And yet I wonder why the very good folks at Andretti Autosport seem to miss out in this one key area almost every single year. Um, Daniel Summerskill, you sent in a question asking about Cal Mylot. Where will he be next year? Um... I invite you to look at the press release uh, that is coming out uh, tomorrow. Um, last one, Renee Davis. Hi, Renee. Is heading to Indy this weekend. Uh, haven't been there before, so any tips on the best place to sit? Uh, what to make sure we see at the track and, of course, your favorite restaurants? Uh, any advice would be appreciated. Um, of course, Renee. I'm not like the super restaurant person uh, here, and that's sad because I'm here basically every year for weeks and weeks, and I should know lots. Kind of a creature of habit. I like to go to the places or get the kinds of foods that I know are going to be okay and not too crazy. So 
I probably really suck. <laughs> I know that I suck on the food side. I mean, I can mention some of the old staples like the mug and bun. Um, it's a great place. You're going to, if you're running low, if uh, you're running low on oil, they will top you up for the rest of your life. So that's that's an old haunt to go to. Charlie Brown's is fairly popular. Uh, I think you'll find A.J. Foyt eating there uh, when he's in town for sure each morning uh, for breakfast. Um, yeah. I'm probably going to fail you at really giving you anything where I'm like, oh my gosh, you must go there. Um, as for seating, uh, I've always uh, suggested to bring in a little folding chair of some sort and a little cart that you can pull along or a backpack that's uh, comfortable to wear where you can effectively tour the inside of the facility. Uh, if we're talking the road course race, very different strategy than what I might recommend for uh, this being an oval race in the speedway. But there are viewing mounds, drivers right on the inside of the track, turn one, turn two. Um, on drivers left, kind of over by the, uh, the, the Brickyard Crossings golf portion, if you were to go over the bridge there, uh, there are some good viewing mounds on the inside of the back straight of the road course. Um, all the way where they come onto it, and then all the way down at the end on the uh, driver's left there in the infield. Uh, there's also some good viewing on the right, on driver's right on the infield um, as they get head over towards the uh, museum. My recommendation is if it's you, Renee, and a spouse and a kid and a, or two or whatever, you know, uh, grandstands might not be the worst thing if you just want to have everyone seated and still. But if you're able to, uh, not knowing how many folks might be with you, if you're able to treat this as more of a walking and touring thing where you can just sit on a mound uh, of grass or preferably have your own little fold-out seat to use uh, and pick when and where you want to stop and watch, that's what I've always suggested as someone who's walked around the track inside and out uh, shooting photos for the indie GPs and whatever else. Uh, I just love the touring aspect of it because you can really and truly see a lot of cool stuff, interesting stuff, cars doing high-performance, insane things, uh, places where passes would be going on. Um, it's kind of a pick-and-choose uh, aspect that I like about this compared to buy a seat in this grandstand, sit there all day. Um, that's at least for me, that would be a shame because there are a lot of different vantage points I think you might enjoy. If you end up doing that, Renee, please send in a, uh, a note for next week's show on what you did and tell us what you ended up doing, what you ended up seeing, what you liked, what you didn't. And uh, as always, tell me if my recommendations were hot garbage. Um, time to say farewell, y'all. Definitely gone a little bit uh, over time here. Try not to go too nuts, about an hour and 15 or so. <sighs> going to try and do a uh, hashtag racing family show on Twitter spaces with my, uh, my dear friend and co-host Chris Wheeler. Uh, just got in tonight from a little bit of RC fun watching with him and Callum Eilat and Gabby Chavez and uh, Jack Benyon from the race and uh, some other good folks from Aram Claren SP. So that was a lot of fun. I just needed to get out. It was going a little bit stir crazy. So, um, We'll be back, hopefully, with our man Wheeler. I don't know if it's going to be 
well, it's probably going to have to be Friday uh, because I'm flying home Saturday night after the race, and I am told that we will have a special guest on Friday night uh, for dinner, uh, according to Mr. Wheeler. And who knows? Maybe we do a little uh, dinner hashtag racing family show and talk about practice and qualifying for the uh, Gallagher, the Galaga uh, video game, the Gallagher Grand Prix of Indianapolis. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our little Marshall Pruitt podcast. Thank you for listening. Really, really, really. Thank you for listening. Sending in all your questions. Crazy amount. Jerry Sutta, thank you. I apologize for the carpal tunnel you got from putting all these together. And he wasn't kidding. It is uh, This show has topped out at 3,999 words. So yeah, one shy of 1,000. Uh, 4,000. But thanks again, Jerry, for putting this together. And Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. I will speak to you very soon.